Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. The Tudors loved a good banquet, and how extravagant they were. Here, the host had the opportunity to show off her wealth and status by serving her guests the most superb food made from the most expensive ingredients and displayed in the most beautiful and sometimes the most outrageous of ways. Here's how George Cavendish, one of Cardinal Thomas Wolsey's servants, described one such banquet prepared for a visiting French embassy. Anon came up the second course with so many dishes, subtleties and curious devices, which were above a hundred in number, of so goodly proportion and costly that I suppose the Frenchman never saw the like. There were castles, St. Paul's Church and steeple, beasts, birds, fowls of diverse kinds. There was a chessboard subtly made of spiced plate. I never saw the like or read in any story or chronicle of any such feast. I'm Susanna Lipscomb. And in this edition of Not Just the Tudors, I'm finding out what the Tudors served at their banquets, how these feasts influenced the habits and even the architecture of the time, and how the availability of sugar, which was thought of as a medicine, transformed the lives and the dental health of the Tudors. I am delighted to say that today I am joined by Brigitta Webster because I had the fortune of meeting Brigitta on a tour some years ago that I was leading on Henry VIII and I discovered that she knows an awful lot more about food in Tudor times than I do. So to give you an idea, in my research for my new book I wanted to know something about something called pink sugar that features in the account books during Catherine of Aragon's childhood. And I asked Brigitte if she'd heard of it. And sometime later, she got back in touch. She had found and recreated two original recipes for pink sugar, one of which involved rubbing rose petals with sugar, then leaving that in the sun for 30 days and stirring it daily. 30 days work. And she sent me the results of the two methods for me to taste. Now that, my friends, is both scholarly and culinary research at its finest. 
Brigitta and her husband Tom run Tudor and 17th century experience at their amazing house Old Hall in Norfolk where you can fully immerse yourself in Tudor and Stuart history living, dressing, eating, drinking like a Tudor and in fact I have to say that Brigitta is the first of my interviewees who has actually decided to do this against the backdrop of a 16th century tapestry we ask guests to make sure they're surrounded by soft furnishings and Brigitte's taking it one step further. And I'm going to stay with them for some filming in a couple of weeks' time. So you may well hear from Brigitte again soon. But today we're talking about food and specifically we're talking about banqueting. So Brigitte, what do we mean by banqueting? What's a banquet in Tudor England? Well, hello, Susanna. It's something that I found over a period of a few years. I started getting really into Tudor food and recreating Tudor food. And I found that banqueting food in particular features in the very early Tudor cookery books. And so I discovered more and more and was absolutely fascinated by the whole subject because it's so much more than just very special food. In fact, it's a very distinctively Tudor social institution that began at the highest level at the court, but then over the years filtered down to a sort of new fashion that everybody wanted to copy. Only stayed in well-to-do families, but even so. And its popularity was aided by a number of different developments at the time. But one of which was definitely that the quantity of sugar that came into England became available at a much more affordable price. Yes, I remember looking at skulls in the Museum of London from the 15th century and from the 16th century. And in the 15th century, they've got a set of teeth that look American, really, you know, (laughs) perfect teeth. And in the 16th century, it all goes horribly wrong and there are abscesses and all sorts of damage, presumably because of the introduction of sugar. Definitely. And also the other problem was that sugar was actually seen as a kind of medicine. So you were actively encouraged to eat sugar, in particular for all ailments that had something to do with colds, because sugar was regarded for its warming qualities. And so when you were cold or you suffered cold symptoms, the remedy was sugar. So in the beginning, it was not just a food for the rich, to display wealth and power, but also to keep your body healthy and in good shape. So it wasn't the ideal combination to keep people actually healthy, as we now know. But the interesting part for me is also that it went hand in hand with the fashion of creating a particular banqueting house or a banqueting room. We see that a little bit of alfresco dining, and we all do it. You know, however small your garden is, out in the summer we are getting the table ready and bring out the food. Now, banqueting food is actually the origin to our need 
to eat outdoors when the weather allows it. And being a gardener with all my heart as well, you know, the two just go hand in hand, banqueting food, eating outdoors. That's why in particular to me, it's such a big attraction. But the word banquet actually comes from the French, which again was taken from the Italian banchetto. I do apologize if my Italian is not correct, but I hope that's how one pronounces it. But the thing is, a banchetto was actually a bench or a table. And we see that word banquet or banchetto, banchettis, the plural, first used in 1483, so very early on in one of William Caxton's editions of the Golden Legend. And it's in about 1530 or thereabout that the word banquet surfaces in direct relation with sweetmeats. And sweetmeats is one of those famous banqueting food items. So it starts being about where you eat, that you're eating on this bench you're eating outside it's not a bench in a park is it what's it like it's so easy to make that assumption but actually the origin goes right back to the late medieval age where you have the feast and at the end of the feast after many courses you get a last course which again came from the french void or voidee, meaning to empty or to avoid, to leave. Because that very last section of the feast was meant to prepare people to leave. So they were pretty much told, right, okay, here we are, there's your last course, have it, and you often had to do it standing up because the staff would actually walk in and take apart the trestle tables and the chairs. <laughs> so you knew, okay, last call, we're going home now. And standing up, you would eat and drink something called hippocras, which was spiced wine. And that went hand in hand with wafers. And the two went always together and that is actually the origin of the banquet. What then happens is that there are changes going on exactly at the same time. So what happens is that people sort of get a little bit fed up of eating and dining in the Great Hall. Because the Great Hall is an awfully drafty, ice cold place. Ah, I was going to say, because it's so beautiful, <laughs> but it's because it's cold. Really cold. I'll show you, it really is very cold. So what does the nobility do? They start to actually not eat in the Great Hall, but they move upstairs onto the first floor where you have smaller rooms that are more comfortable. They often do have curtains. There is a fireplace. It's just a lot more inviting. So you already have this move where dinner gets moved to a different room. And that's very important because the banquet 
in England, and that's what's so significant, only in England does that last course, the sweet course, start to move into a different room. In the beginning, it was only a room, a banqueting room. And again, the significance is that you had to have a special invitation to do so. So the majority of the dinner would know, right, okay, we have just been told to have our hippocras and our wafer. Let's do that, finish it, and they would then go home. But people who stayed the night or by special invitation would then go into whatever room was set aside for the banquet. So the banquet is not describing a huge feast in England by then, but more a special course taken elsewhere. And it could be done because the banqueting food was portable. It was cold. It could be prepared in advance. The servants could set it up in whichever room that was going to be. And it provided the people who were joining that banquet for a lot more privacy. The staff could be told, right, out, and people liked that. And the other thing was that there was no strict order where people had to sit. So it was all of a sudden a social event where you could pick your conversational partner, whoever you wanted to get closer to or find out the latest gossip. So it was a lot more laid back. So this is really important politically in Tudor times, if one thinks about it, because actually it's intimate. It's a special group of people who've been invited to something after the main feast. They're getting this wonderful food, which hopefully we'll come to in a second, but they are outside of earshot of other people and they have that freedom to talk and petition and to have those intimate conversations that are going to change things and that really matter. Exactly. So there are elements of banqueting food that are a lot older than this, eating it somewhere else. So we still have the hippocrats, we still have the wafers, but there are new things slowly being introduced to what we now know as banqueting food, which was actually in the beginning also digestive. So you have a lot of sugar, as we said, and you also have a lot of spices because spices, again, were exceptionally important to show your wealth, your influence, your power. It shows that you are aware of being healthy, still very important now as it was then, and then obviously the sugar. So you start to see things moving in like comfits. Now, what is a comfit? Comfit is nothing else but sugar-coated seeds like anise, caraway, fennel, coriander, nuts like almonds or even roots for instance angelica root or ginger root and they would coat them in sugar and that was served even in the late medieval age in that void section and funny enough you can still get them if you go to an indian restaurant i was going to say if you go for a curry they give you seeds are they actually good for your digestion then 
Well, <laughs> yes and no. We obviously know that the fennel seeds would help you if you suffered from wind. <laughs> but generally, they are not as effective as they used to be known for. But the other effect is they were also known as aphrodisiacs. And again, it all buys into this very special romantic part of a feast called the banquet, where you can actually meet and talk to the person of your choice. You eat the stuff that makes you, well, they thought horny in a way. So you see, it's all a big, big, big thing. And presumably they make your breath smell nicer as well, which in Tudor England has got to be an attraction. Yeah, I suppose after a feast, having eaten lots of weird stuff, that's most helpful, especially if you want to talk to somebody closer. <laughs> OK, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Okay, so we've got comfits. What else might we find at a banquet? Then you obviously have the all-famous subtleties. Now, subtleties is probably what really ruined your teeth because it's sugar work or sugar paste. And it's something that was used to actually form little sculptures of because after each course even earlier on, you had a round of subtleties coming in. Subtleties were basically sugar paste and formed into little pieces of art. Now, those could be of a religious background. 
it could be of an allegorical theme, but it was always there to send out a message. So anybody who was there looking at it knew the message. And they were also very expensive to produce because you obviously have to be very talented. I am lucky because I have an artist daughter here who will quite happily form anything I ask her in sugar paste. It's very hard to work with sugar paste. You need to be really quite good with your hands. They were often then painted or even gilded. The bigger, the better. And there are some quite famous examples of St. Paul's Cathedral being presented to Elizabeth I, but there really is a whole lot. And in the beginning, they were meant to be eaten. Later on, in Elizabethan times, they became so huge that they just were there to show off, basically, but not eaten. But another important element as part of the banquet is the march pain, being the Tudor form of marzipan. The only thing is the Tudors mixed in rose water and they baked their march pain and then iced it and gilded it. So there's a story, isn't there, about Wolsey having, I think, a St Paul's Cathedral. And I don't know if it was March pain or a subtlety, but something coming to table made of something edible. Buildings were a very popular theme and they were produced both in sugar work and March pain. Wolsey is famous for having commissioned an awful lot of these. I also know that he commissioned various chess boards with chess figurines and sent them to French ambassadors and anybody who needed to be bribed, basically. And Elizabeth also got a chessboard made by her master cook, whose name was George Webster. Well, it's an amazing gift, isn't it? I mean, if you send somebody something, it's made of sugar, which is expensive in the first place. You've had this artist work on it to create this great illusion of a chessboard or whatever it is. You know, it demonstrates your wealth and it shows your favour. It's an amazing present. Yeah, and then we obviously have the huge group of what they refer to as suckets. What a name. What is a sucket? <laughs> Right, there were two major groups in the group of suckets. You had the wet suckets and you had the dry suckets. And suckets were basically fruit-based, sugar and fruit-based. And the most famous one is what we know of marmalade. But it's not anything like the modern marmalade, which is made of orange, as we know. No, the original Tudor marmalade, my personal favourite, was a new luxury product from Portugal. And the name marmalade actually tells you what it is. It's made of quince, because the Portuguese word for quince is mamelo. And that's where we have the word marmalade from. And what it is, it's basically a stiff paste from quince, boiled down with lots and lots of sugar until it forms an almost solid confection. So you can actually be picked up with your fingers. It's a bit sticky, but nothing too bad, and eaten like that. And it was often poured into moulds 
so they come up with a really nice design on it. And the first marmalades you see appear in England at the end of the 15th century. So much so that in 1495, imports of marmalade started to attract special custom duties. And that tells you, oh, there was a lot coming in. <laughs> they were getting worried, they're missing out, which is quite interesting. So marmalade is a sucket and we've got March pains and subtleties. So all of them are things that are sweet to taste and shaped into something. And they are finger food as well, aren't they? They're things you can pick up and pop in your mouth. Most of them, well, actually, there is a device called a sucket fork. And the sucket fork is amazing. Sounds very rude. It's a spork. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the modern camping device called a spork? Yes. Which is a spoon on one end and the fork on the other. Well, that is what basically a sucking fork looks like. So we think we are so clever coming up with this device. Mm -mm. Obviously, theirs was made of metal and probably gold and silver, possibly pewter. But you needed that one to eat the wet suckets because the wet suckets were basically conserves like pear in red wine. Very nice. <laughs> so pear roasted in red wine. Yes, it's a famous wet sucket. Ah. And you obviously needed the spoon to spoon out the wine and you needed the fork to grab and get hold of the pear. And this must be quite an early use of a fork. Exactly, but it was only used at the banqueting section and only for those wet suckets. It was not used anywhere else. And in fact, when the English were first introduced to this Italian table manner of using a fork for anything else we very much belittled them and said <laughs> we don't need that it was something that we only here in england started to use in the 18th century another one i really really love personally is called sucade which is a dry sucket and that is made from oranges it's actually the peel of the orange again boiled in a lot of sugar and then dried and that is quite amazing i actually prefer it to chocolate it's a very tedious process it takes roughly four days to finish a batch of those but oh, it's so much worth it okay if you think it's better than chocolate i think you're going to have to talk us through how you make it so that we can test it for ourselves right Obviously, at the moment here in England, we can only make those in the season when we have access to Seville oranges. And Seville oranges are different to your normal sweet oranges because they are way too sour and bitter to eat. And we are not using the flesh or the juice for our suckets. We use just the peel, but the peel is perfect because it's really, really thick. You don't want a very thin orange peel. You want it really, really thick. So what you do first is you start submerging the oranges in fresh water or fair water, as the Tudors would say, and you do that for days on end. 
you change the water as many times as you remember, but preferably up to four or five times, because that's the only way how you can withdraw the bitterness. And the more often you do that, the better the end result. So you spend days on end just changing water <laughs> and leaving pots of oranges submerged in water. It smells nice. And when I do that, the whole house smells lovely of oranges. But it's a bit of a nightmare because those buckets are standing everywhere. Anyway, <laughs> so finally, you get to actually use the peels. What you do is you take them out and uh, depending on the recipe, most recipes of the period are actually Elizabethan. The earliest I could find dated to, I think, 1562, if I remember correctly. But what they tell you, either they say, chop it in half, get rid of the flesh and the juice, use that for a pottage or something else, and cut up the peels into little strips or halves, depending on what you do with it. And then you boil them in water. Then you change the water and you boil it again. Okay, so just water at this point. Yes, just water until they become really, really soft or translucent. Some recipes tell you that the peel has to start looking translucent. And when you start doing this, you think to yourself, huh? <laughs> that will never happen. But it does, it does. All of a sudden you think, well, actually, now I can tell what they mean by it. Then you know it's time to boil them in lots and lots of sugar. And typical for the Tudor period, there are no measurements. You just go by gut feeling how much sugar you use for the amount of oranges you have. It's trial and error, a lot of trial and a lot of error. But in the end, you work it out and you hope that you actually took notes on how much you used for the successful recipe. Anyway, so you do that. You start boiling it in a lot of sugar and some recipes, again, ask for spices like cinnamon. So you add those or rose water. Oh my goodness, yes, the cheetahs like their rose water. And then you boil it down until it becomes quite a thickish, sluggish, sugary paste surrounding the peel. You fish them out and you dry them. And that's when it gets really messy because by that stage, they are dripping in something gooey, very sticky. And again, you put them onto different dishes. You dry them for a day. Sometimes I try and do it inside the oven, but it doesn't really work very well. And I don't really know whether the Tudors would have used the oven. There is no indication they did, and nobody mentions they have done it. So I'd rather not do it and go with the recipes tell you, put it in the sun, <laughs> which is a joke in February in England. <laughs> but hey, you know, you do. I cheat a little bit. I often put them on top of my agar where the air is fairly warm. But still, it takes days on end. Every day you take them off, you turn them over, you put them back until eventually the sugar crust starts to develop. And when you can pick it up without it getting sticky or feeling sticky, then you know you're ready. 
You said this took four or five days. This sounds like a work of weeks. <laughs> it is. But the end result is just amazing. We mustn't forget that labor was so cheap. And funny enough, saying that, it was the Tudor housewife, in particular the Elizabethan lady housewife, who would carry out those recipes with her staff. But she would be very much involved in making these herself because it was part of her duty. One of her duties was to look after the health of her family and the members of her family. And sugar being <laughs> healthy, you can see the connection again. It was part of the medicines she produced. So she didn't just get involved in herbs, but also sugar work. And that was one. And obviously it was also a very well received gift, especially for New Year, or if you wanted to buy somebody's favor, that always worked. Then it does now a little bit of homemade sweet treats go a long way, as we know. And there's a funny development there, which you might be interested in. Towards the end of the 16th century, as you know, the duty of these lady of the house started to look after the health of the people, especially when it went to producing medicine, was taken away from her more and more. And the interesting part is that this could potentially also explain why with James I, we get more and more of the witch hunts because you are now dealing with elderly women who were brought up to look after and know how to keep the family healthy, to make potions, to make sugary medicines. You couldn't stop them. I mean, society told them, no, 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 you don't do that anymore. It's now the job of the men who studied that at university, obviously the grandmas, were used to doing it. Yet then, with James I and obviously his fear of witches, this started to not go down so well. That's really interesting. Yeah, I do think we see the medicalization of health much more in this period. And absolutely, it's taken by men as their responsibility. That's a fascinating thing. You have compiled these recipes haven't you? So if anybody is listening to this and thinking, gosh, those sound good, possibly a lot of work, but maybe delicious. If you go to TudorExperience.com, Brigitta has compiled all her recipes into a book called A Banquet at the Old Hall, which you should have a look at so that you know how to make some of these delicious things. One final thought, Brigitta, what is your favourite? Would it be that orange sucket or the marmalade? Yeah, I would say the sucade, yes. But then again, anything with fruit, I can't really get too excited about the pure sugary ones. <laughs> but any fruit paste, the Tudors also produce lovely fruit tarts, which I will make you one when you come. So you can see or taste yourself how awesome these are. And the fruit tarts are a little bit easier to make, so anybody can make those. I can't wait. Thank you very much for wetting all our appetites and taking us back to this dreamy world of being in a banqueting house. 
and having this intimate time eating sugary treats with people that we fancy and we're trying to persuade into some sort of liaison it all sounds rather delicious and naughty thank you so much thank you very much You've been listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.